Amen. We are in Luke chapter 19, if you want to open up your Bibles there. Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up where we left off at verse 45, and then we're going to make our way into chapter 20. Tonight, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. And so we're picking right up where we left off last week, which is this is Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry. Uh, This was also known at that time as the Day of the Lambs, where shepherds from Bethlehem would be bringing in herds of lambs to the temple for Passover. This is also the day uh, that Jewish families would select a lamb to Uh, come and be in their home to celebrate the Passover and then offer as a sacrifice. You go all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 and the last plague that came upon the land of Egypt, the death of the firstborn, and the children of Israel are told that they are to select a lamb without spot, without blemish, and to bring it into their home. And they were to do that on the 10th of Nisan, which just so happens to be this day. So the day that lambs are being presented here, Jesus is making his triumphal entry. He's the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and he comes to the closest thing that was his home on earth. He goes to the temple. As a matter of fact, in our passage, he's going to refer to it as his father's house. So he goes in, and now for the second time in his earthly ministry, he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to drive out those who were buying and selling. John chapter 2 records the first time that Jesus did that. It would seem right in the very beginning of his ministry, he goes into the temple. It's in John 2 that we're told he made a whip, which I don't know why I like that little detail, but in case you're a student of the Bible and you want to know, John is the one who tells us that he did that. Uh, But now Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the second time that Jesus cleanses the temple, uh, three and a half years later almost, at the very end of his ministry. And we'll talk more uh, why he did that in just a moment. But on this day where lambs were being inspected in the temple to see if they could be a sacrifice for Passover, Jesus presents himself as the lamb, and then he kind of turns the tables on everybody, and he becomes the one doing the inspecting. He becomes the one who looks around and he sees some things that shouldn't be. He sees some things that don't belong. He drives out what shouldn't be there. He makes his home there in the temple. We find out from the other gospels that he's healing. He's opening up the eyes of the blind. He's preaching the gospel. He's teaching people there now through the remainder of this Passion Week. And of course, this is what Jesus wants to do in each one of our lives. He wants to make this triumphal entry, whether it's receiving him for the very first time or whether it's as we continue in a relationship with him. He wants to come and present himself as the Passover lamb. He wants to come and present himself as the sacrifice needed for our sins. We cannot have a relationship with God unless we come to that place first that I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I recognize that I need a Savior. That's where it all starts. Uh, Sometimes we do live in a culture where they just want a little bit of church. They just want a little bit of Jesus. They're not ready to necessarily receive him as the Passover lamb. They're just looking for some kind of a tradition to hold on to. And that might work for some sort of having a, 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 
a regular part of our lives where we're going to church and it's a tradition that we follow, but it's not going to work in having a life-saving relationship with Jesus. We have to come to the cross. We have to receive what He's done on our behalf, that He is the sacrifice who takes away not only the sins of the world, but He takes away our sins, that He died in our place. He presents Himself as the Passover lamb, but then He begins to make His home in our lives, His home in our hearts. He drives out things that shouldn't be. He heals, he cleanses, he teaches, he renews, he refreshes. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus cleansing the temple of our lives and we think of it only in terms of this negative thing and, oh, I have all of this junk that needs to be removed. Well, sometimes we do have junk that needs to be removed, but it's also a time of healing. It's also a time of being refreshed and renewed. And this isn't just a once in a lifetime deal, this is a daily practice. That we come and we say, okay, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you that you're the Passover lamb. Forgive me and wash me. And now heal me, Lord. Teach me. Drive out anything that shouldn't be. Drive out my selfish ways and motivations and be the Lord of my life. This is a daily practice and something he wants to do in each one of our lives. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. I'll start here by finishing up chapter 19 at verse 45, reading down to verse 48, and we'll get into our study. It says, Then when he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And so we know here from the Bible that there were those who were buying and selling inside of the temple. It would seem they're within the court of the Gentiles. When we compare all of the Gospels together, that's where we get the full picture. Uh, we know that there were those who were changing money. Uh, changing the currency from the Roman coin to the Jewish shekel. We know there were those who were selling animals for sacrifices. Now all of that would have been bad by itself just because of where they were. Uh, not to mention some of the other things that were going on that we'll look at in just a minute. But we know where they were. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the one place where a non-Jewish person could come and worship the Lord. The one place where they could come in, as you first enter the temple, this is the court of the Gentiles, and so this is the only place where they could come and pray and worship. And you kind of have to imagine someone who isn't Jewish, perhaps living in Israel or just outside of Israel, and they hear about the Lord. They hear about the one true and living God, and so they come to Jerusalem, they make the journey. For some of them, maybe it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience to go, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to the temple, I'm going for Passover, I'm going to go worship the one true and living God. And they make this long journey, and then there it is, there's Jerusalem, beautiful in elevation, Mount Zion, this holy city on a hill, and they come close to the temple, and they're so excited and they're just anticipating, you know, what's this going to be like? I know what pagan religion's all about. I know what idolatry's all about. Wow, here's Jerusalem. Here's the temple coming into worship. And it's a full-blown barnyard, petting zoo, 
smelly animals everywhere, making noise, and you're trying to pray, and you're like, oh, Lord, meet with me, and then right next to you, you know, making all this noise right in your ear, and there's people arguing, buying and selling, haggling over price, and that was what was going on in Jesus' day. Now, we know from history and from extra-biblical sources that above and beyond just where it was going on, we also know that the religious leaders were ripping people off that they were making a lot of money in all of this. First, you had the money changers, who, as I mentioned, they would take the Roman coin and they would turn that into the temple shekel because they said, well, of course, you can't bring your pagan money inside of the temple. And so whether it was to pay the temple tax or whether it was to purchase one of the animals that was available for sacrifice, they said, you can't use your Roman coin. I mean, that has Caesar's face on it. Oh, that would be horrible. That would be blasphemous. And that being said, we'll take it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll unload that burden from you because that's the kind of people that we are. You know, don't worry, we'll, we'll change your money. And that, I guess, would have been fine, except they were doing it at an exorbitant rate. They're charging this high price, this transaction fee, so they're making money off of, of the exchange that's going on there. Uh, we also know that the religious leaders were notorious for finding some problem if you brought a sacrifice. Because again, it had to be a sacrifice that was without spot, without blemish, and the one who made the determination was the priest. And so you could bring a sacrifice that you thought would be acceptable, but if the priest said, oh, no, nope, sorry, there's a little spot right there, there's a little blemish right here, and so sorry, you're not going to be able to offer one of these animals, but good news. We can put you in one of our pre-approved, pre-packaged lambs today. You know, what's it going to take to get you to endorse this contract? You know, what's it going to take uh, to put you in one of these little lambs today? And so that's what they were doing uh, there in the temple. And of course, they're charging a very high rate uh, for that as well. Animals inside of the temple were being sold uh, for much more than animals were being sold outside of the temple. And that's why it makes sense in verse 46 when Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. You're ripping people off in all of this and, and making lots of money. And one of the things that we have to understand about this passage, one of the things that you have to understand about this righteous anger from Jesus, this righteous indignation that really causes him now to, to react and do some things that he wouldn't normally do. Flipping tables over, driving people out. As I mentioned, John 2, and the first time he cleansed the temple, that's where he has the whip. And we can only imagine, I mean, what a picture of a, all the Sunday school pictures up on the wall. Jesus whipping somebody out of the temple. I mean, it's quite a picture. And what caused it, it was more than it just being this annoying thing that the religious leaders were doing. Taking advantage of people, making a profit, it was more than just the hassle of all of it. What was happening is they were misrepresenting God. And that's something that the Lord takes seriously. And it's something then that we should all take note of. Because all of us, in one area of our life or another, represent God. Whether it's as a parent, a grandparent, uh, whether it's at church, or Sunday school, and some relationship, and, and someone that you're communicating with, if you're standing up and you're saying, well, here's what God is like, or here's what he wants you to do, 
or here's the plan that he has for your life, you're speaking in his name and you're representing him and God takes it seriously when we misrepresent him. And he has to deal uh, with the religious leaders here who are doing just that. Now, of course, when Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer, we know in the Gospel of Mark, the, the fuller quote is given of Isaiah 56, verse 7. Uh, that's where it comes from. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, it said that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. So Jesus comes and he drives all of these people out and he says, you're misrepresenting me. It's written in Isaiah, my father's house is gonna be a house of prayer for everyone, not just the Jewish people. It's to be a house of prayer for all nations. Everyone should be able to come here and you've set up this barnyard in the court of the Gentiles. The one place where a non-Jewish person could come and worship You've turned it into this circus. You've turned it into this sideshow. And of course, for a non-Jewish person, you come to the temple, and what would you be forced to conclude? You would have to assume, well, I guess God doesn't really care that much about me. I guess the Jewish people are a lot more important to God than the non-Jewish person, and my experience here is kind of off to the side and not important, and he recognizes me about as much as he recognizes the sheep or the oxen that are being sold. And so it's misrepresenting God. That wasn't true. God wanted to be the Jewish people to be a light to all of the nations and his temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, and so they were misrepresenting him. They were misrepresenting him to the Gentiles. They were misrepresenting him to the poor. If you were poor during these days, you might not be able to really come in and worship at all, or it might be extremely difficult for you. You might also come under the impression that somehow God doesn't care about you as much that it seems to be a lot easier, it seems to be a lot more convenient for those who are wealthy, for those who had means, and so perhaps for a poor person who's standing on the outside, not able to come in because they can't afford all of these gouges that are being going on in there, or if they can, they're just barely scraping in with the bare minimum, they would maybe come under the impression, well, I guess God doesn't care about me as much, and we know that that wasn't true. We know that throughout the scripture, there's provisions that are made for the poor, for them to be able to worship, for them to be a part of what's going on. Uh, we know that provision would be made for them, that God cared deeply about the way that the poor was treated, and especially if they were being taken advantage of, uh, that was something that God always had an answer for. And so here, they're misrepresenting all of those things because we know from historians, they say that a dove inside of the temple was sold for 20 times more than a dove outside of the temple. Now, a dove was supposed to be a sacrifice for someone who didn't have a lot of money. If you couldn't afford a lamb, if you couldn't afford a greater sacrifice, okay, a dove was available for the poor. Now, think about that. The provision that God made for the poor Inside the temple, they're selling it for 20 times more than it's worth. And so they're taking advantage of people. They're misrepresenting God, and it's something that he takes seriously. How big of a deal is that? 
to misrepresent the Lord, we'll just ask Moses. <laughs> Moses didn't go into the promised land because he misrepresented the Lord. You remember in Numbers chapter 17, the children of Israel, they didn't have any water in the wilderness. And so they started complaining. And in all fairness, you know, they were really complaining. They were saying things like, we'd be better off dead. We'd be better off if we were just still in Egypt. Why did you even deliver us out of Egypt? We should have stayed there. And so Moses goes to God and God says, all right, they need water. Speak to the rock and the water is going to flow out from it. And Moses says, got it. And then he gets all of the people together and he goes, all right, you rebels. <laughs> all right, you ragtag bunch of nobodies. And you want to complain and you want to whine. Do I really need to bring the water out of the rock for you? And he took his rod, this symbol of God's authority and power, and he smashed the rock twice, communicating a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. Now God in his grace he allows water to flow. And so the water does flow and they're able to get water. But of course, then God has to deal with Moses and say, you know, why did you do that? Why did you smash the rock twice? Because number one, Moses, you just messed up all of this imagery. Because back on Mount Sinai, God told Moses to strike the rock. And of course, in the New Testament, we're told Jesus is the rock. Jesus only had to be struck once he only had to die once and for all for our sins. Moses, you just messed up my whole little Sunday school story here. You strike the rock once and then you speak to the rock. Why did you strike the rock again? But above and beyond that, Moses, you misrepresented me. You made it look like I was angry and frustrated with the people when the reality is you were angry and frustrated with the people. And as a result of that, Moses, I'm sorry. You're not going into the promised land. You misrepresented me. Now on a side note from that whole little story as we're talking about misrepresenting the Lord, but on a side note, I was just thinking about that today. How amazing is it that God wasn't angry? Moses smashed the rock expressing some anger and frustration, but that was just him. God wasn't angry. As I mentioned, they were whining and complaining. They were saying some pretty foolish things. Oh, we'd be better off dead. We'd be better off if you left us in Egypt. Think about that. They were slaves in Egypt and bondage in Egypt. God in his grace shows up and delivers them. And they say, you should have left us there. They say it to Moses, but let's face it, they're really saying it to God. And he wasn't angry. He looked at them and was like, yeah, they need water. They're out there in the desert, man. It's been a long journey. He knows their frame. He knows they're just human beings. He realizes, look, they just need a drink. They just need to be refreshed. They just need water, and this is going to kind of go away. God, in his grace, he's able to see all of that. And I think there are times where we can view ourselves sort of less than Christians, not living up to where we should be maybe wrestling with a little guilt because we're always dealing with some fear or doubt or anxiety or worry and we're convicted because as a Christian, should I even be wrestling with some of these things? And I wonder if God is angry. I wonder if God is upset. And while I'm not saying that we should make it a habit to whine and complain against God, but how gracious and how good is He 
that He looks at us and He knows our frame and He knows sometimes the journey is great and we just need to be refreshed. We just need to be renewed. How amazing is it that He's not standing there with His rod of correction ready to smack us, uh, that He just says, no, they, they just need to be refreshed. They just need the water of the Word, the water of the Holy Spirit. They just need a fresh filling of me in their life. And so, misrepresenting God, it's a big deal and it's something that we should take seriously. It's something that these religious leaders apparently had no problem doing, just like there are some today that seemingly have no problem misrepresenting God and spreading all kinds of strange, false doctrine. And it's almost always then to benefit them. The strange, false teachings that people don't mind spreading about God then is somehow lining their pockets and, and making them successful and, and rich and wealthy. And that's exactly what the religious leaders were doing as well. But one last thing that we need to notice before we move on here from cleansing the temple is, is you notice that not only did Jesus drive out those who were selling, it says that He drove out those who were buying. He drove out those who were buying and selling. And so apparently, there was perhaps an element of the purchasers that Jesus didn't appreciate. Now you look at the story, and clearly the religious leaders, they're right in the center of what's going on here, and misrepresenting God, and ripping people off, and turning his father's house into a den of thieves. And yet again, it says that he drove out those who were buying. Because of course, if you were rich in this situation, then this was ideal. What a great setup. You mean, I don't have to bring this smelly animal into my home? I don't got to figure out a way to somehow transport it to Jerusalem, to the temple? I can just show up and write a check and the whole thing's done? I don't have to bring this animal in and identify with it. I don't have to consider that this innocent animal that didn't do anything wrong is now going to die because I'm a sinner. And so it's coming to my home where I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm the reason this animal is going to have to be put to death. Oh, I can just skip that whole process? Someone else will do all of the dirty work for me? That sounds great. So I just show up and I just pay the price. I don't have to identify with the lamb and it's just going to be sacrificed. I get to have this religious experience without getting my hands dirty, without being invested or involved, I can just show up and it kind of produced this lazy worshiper. And it says that Jesus drove not only those who are selling, but those who are buying out of the temple. And we certainly see aspects of that in our world today. The lazy worshiper. We, we see churches that cater uh, to that kind of a mindset where, hey, you don't have to get involved. You don't have to be invested. You don't have to identify with the Lamb, Jesus, the cross. You don't have to have any call to action. So don't talk about repentance of sin. Don't talk about sin at all. Don't talk about the cross. Don't talk about His blood. Don't talk about all of those sticky things that we would rather just avoid. Give messages that are warm and fuzzy and feel good and give people a religious experience they don't need to roll up their sleeves. They don't need to be involved in the work that's going on. Somebody else will handle all of that for them. That sounds very much 
like a good majority of our American church. And look, you know, it's not about picking a fight with anybody, and it's, it's not about being difficult for the sake of being difficult. I like comforts. You know, I like nice chairs to sit in. Just a second ago, as I was walking up here, I thought, you know, it could be a few degrees cooler in here. You know, I should really say something. Remind me to put that into the staff meeting notes. It could be a few degrees cooler. I don't mind some luxuries. We have an ice cream machine here, after all. There's there's nothing wrong with enjoying ourselves. We don't need to make things hard just for the sake of it, because that's kind of the other extreme. And yet, we want to speak the truth. We want to have people come and encounter Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We want people to encounter Him, and yeah, part of that is convicting. Part of that is, oh, the spotlight of heaven is on me, and my sin is exposed. God sees my heart. God sees my mind and your mind as plainly as he sees anything else. And and so there's this conviction that comes, this realization, I've offended a holy God. But then the beauty of his love and his majesty and the cross that he was willing to sacrifice himself. There has to be that conviction There has to be that uncomfortability that we might be able to receive the the free gift and the grace of God and His love and His mercy that washes over us and cleanses us and gives us a new life. And we want to be involved and we want to be engaged. We want to be a part of the work that God's doing in this world. And so Jesus, He drives out those who are buying and He drives out those who are selling says in verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And so here is Jesus making his home, setting up shop there in the temple, opening up the eyes of the blind, Matthew tells us, and teaching people and preaching the gospel and people are attentive, and people are listening. And of course, now the religious leaders remain plotting his destruction. Now as we get into chapter 20 here, verse 1, it says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So it says the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they confronted him. This no doubt is at least in part, if not in full, the Sanhedrin, a group of 70, the religious leaders of the religious leaders, so to speak. This is the same group that's going to have Jesus arrested and put on an illegal trial and then delivered over to Pilate to be crucified. And so they come to Jesus and they say, tell us 
By what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority? Now, it's not that the question itself is really all that bad or off base. There was some merit to it as they're coming. They're the religious leaders. Jesus just comes in, driving people out, making all of these decisions. And so they come and they say, well, what authority are you doing this with? It's not that it was an unreasonable question. It's just that they really had come to a place where they weren't looking for an answer. It was all a big game. It was all for show. And so Jesus is going to call them out on it. Now, after the first time Jesus cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, they come to him and they say something similar. There they say, what sign do you show us since you do these things? You know, what sign from heaven, what big spectacular thing are you going to do to demonstrate and prove that you have the authority to be doing those things? And there Jesus in John chapter 2 said, here's the sign I'll give you. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And of course they start laughing and oh, well, you can't rebuild this temple. It's going to take much longer if it was destroyed. You couldn't rebuild it in three days. And then we're specifically told there in John, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus says, you want to know what gives me the authority to be doing these things? How about the resurrection? How about you'll kill me and three days later I'll rise from the dead? And listen, that explanation to the religious leaders, it was a good explanation then, it's still a good explanation today. What gives Jesus the authority? What gives him the authority to make these claims? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the only true source of life. The enemy comes to rob, steal, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. What gives him that authority to make those claims? What gives him the authority to come in and say, yeah, I want to be the king of your life, and, and I want you to submit to my lordship, and you're going to follow me? What gives him that authority? Well, they killed him, and three days later, he rose from the dead conquering sin, conquering death. And I know there's always people who come along, well, you know, in Greek mythology, you know, there's a similar story. Well, you know, Buddha and Confucius, they had some things to say too. Look, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There's one person we know from history who really did live, who really did die, who really did rise again from the grave. And you had religious leaders who would have given anything to somehow be able to disprove it and never could. You had disciples who were willing to go to their death, who were tortured and hunted down and killed, refusing to deny, I've seen the risen Jesus Christ. And not only do we have the facts of history that he lived and died and rose again, we also have the conviction and convincing power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. You'll know that I am who I claim to be and the Holy Spirit is going to convict and convince people because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, and a multitude of people all saw that. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of these things, convincing them that they're true. 
And so Jesus had already given that response early on in his ministry. Here he has a slightly different response. He answers their question with a question. And I think it's important to take note. This isn't Jesus dodging them. This isn't Jesus trying to buy some time. It kind of sounds like the sort of thing I would do. (laughs) I don't know what to say, and so I will. Let me ask you a question just to buy a little extra time. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is asking them a question because he's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing the fact that they're just playing a game, and apparently Jesus is done playing this game with them. He says, John the Baptist. Was his baptism from God or was it from man? Answer. What do you say? If you answer that question, then I'll answer your question. And so I love it. You know, the religious leaders, they kind of do one of these, they huddle together occasionally look over at Jesus, you know, come back down, you know, conspire together. What are we going to say? Well, because if we say that it's from God, he's going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Oh, that's a good point, you know. But if we say he's not from God, these people are liable to stone us. They all were pretty convinced John was a prophet. <laughs> Looking over there. And then eventually, you know, they come up and they, you know, have an official answer and they say, <clears throat> we don't know. <laughs> We've uh, got our experts on it. We've got this group of the religious leaders of the religious leaders, and our expert opinion is we don't know. And of course, they're messing around. No one wants to really know the truth. No one's really looking for a legitimate answer here. They're playing a game. You know, I find it interesting that they say, well, if we say that he was from God, he'll say to us, well, why didn't you listen to him then? I find that interesting because it almost seems to be their own convicted hearts that are saying that. Because why couldn't they in that moment pretend as if they did listen? You know, we know that John had a few interactions with the religious leaders, called them a brood of vipers, and who warned you to flee from the wrath to come and, you know, show the fruits worthy of repentance. We, We know they had some interaction But the fact that they don't want to say he's a man because the people considered him to be a prophet and they would maybe stone him if they said that tells you that there was some song and dance going on among the religious leaders pretending to be okay with John. And so why couldn't they have pretended? You know, they say, oh, if we say he's from God, then Jesus is going to say to us, well, why didn't you listen to him? It's like they just know in their own hearts They're resisting this message. I mean, can you imagine John the Baptist? Jesus said, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, didn't care about anything, eating bugs and stuff, grasshoppers sticking out of his beard, and just wildly preaching the gospel like this bold madman had to be extremely convincing, right? People are coming out by the droves. You're right, you're right, we're sinners, We should prepare our hearts. The Messiah is coming. John the Baptist preaching this message and the religious leaders, they were out there resisting, resisting. I'm not giving in. I'm not going out. I'm not getting in the water. Forget that. Who is this crazy guy? And so when Jesus says this to him, they say, oh, well, if we say that he's from God, he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you listen to him? It's like we're getting a little bit of insight into this wrestling, convicting match that's going on in their own hearts. And every once in a while, you'll stumble across that with people. You'll just show up somewhere, and someone will be like, no, 
I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't say anything. It's like there's a whole conversation going on in their heart where they're convicted and they know they're not right with God and you just being in the room is exposing that. It's kind of one of those moments. And so they say, well, we don't know, Jesus, if, who he's, if he's from God or if he wasn't from God. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. You're not going to be honest and real with me, so I'm not going to be honest and real with you. You know, a lot of times people can have this attitude that God pursuing after them or convicting them is this burden. You know, oh, he's relentless. Oh, I'm always convicted. Oh, I'm feeling so guilty. Oh, just leave me alone. The real judgment is God leaving you alone. The real judgment is God saying, okay, yeah, I'm not going to wrestle with you forever on this. And we always act as if we have all of the time in the world. I was, it was impressed on my heart this morning as I was sharing with some high schoolers. It, we act as if we have all the time in the world. And of course, for young people, you certainly hope that they do. You hope that they have another 20, 30, 40, 50 years should the Lord tarry. But the truth is, is we don't know that. Tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. We always act as if there's all the time in the world and God could be pursuing after us and knocking on the door of our heart and we almost act like it's this burden, like, oh man, when's he gonna leave me alone? Oh, that's the real judgment. That's the real judgment when he leaves us alone. That's the real judgment when he says, you know what? If you're gonna play games, if you're gonna pretend like you don't hear me knocking on the door of your heart, then perhaps I'm going to stop speaking and you can just continue in the direction that you're going in. And then Jesus now, he's going to begin to speak in parables. And so as he goes in to cleanse the temple, as we would say, Lord, would you cleanse the temple of my heart? Would you cleanse the temple of my life? And of course, the, body, the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just like the temple in Jerusalem needed to be cleansed more than once, sometimes we need to allow Jesus to cleanse this temple more than once. Not that we're getting saved over and over again, but there's those times where we have to say, okay, Lord, I understand that you're the Passover lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Would you drive out the things that don't belong? Would you heal and restore would you teach me? Would you put me on the right path? And, and by from time to time, I mean every day. Every day we need to say, Lord, thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Please come in. Please come close. Please drive out what shouldn't be. Please touch me and heal me. Maybe I need the water of your word, the water of your Holy Spirit. Maybe I just need that, that refreshing that comes from your presence. And maybe that's you. Maybe you need his fresh touch tonight and he's here and he's present. And when we're honest and real with him, he'll be honest and real with us. Amen? Let's come before him together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We do thank you for your presence here in this place. And I just lift up anyone here tonight that needs your touch. Maybe it's your forgiveness. Maybe it's repentance of sin that needs to take place. Maybe it's turning from the direction that they're going in. Maybe it's identifying with you, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away our sin. 
And so, Lord, if there's anyone here that needs your touch, that needs your forgiveness, I pray that today would be the day that they wouldn't put off for another moment, that they would say, yes, Jesus, would you come in? I open up the door of my heart. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you help me to follow you? Lord, for all of us here, we know you and we love you, and yet we still ask that you would come in and that you would drive out anything that shouldn't be that your healing touch would be upon us, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we'd be renewed in your presence. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.